Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to turn to Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 13, read through 18. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're focused on 16 through 18, and we went through 13 through 15 last week, but I wanted to put this new section in context. Um, Last week we thought about the statement attributed to rebellious Israel It is vain to serve God. It's vain to serve God. When we get to the point that we think it is no benefit to worship or submit ourselves to God, and that happens without declaring yourself a full-blown atheist, right? When that happens, the promises of the world and her comforts become a huge temptation to each of us. This week, this text in Malachi verses 16 to 18, turns to consider those who do not think according to that wicked proverb that it's vain to serve the Lord. In other words, there were some who heard the prophet's warning and who did repent. Right? It turns, it turns to those who by faith will not and cannot think that it is vain to serve God. Those who believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And express that faith by one particular characteristic, fear, the fear of the Lord. Again, we come back to the fear of the Lord. You might think that's a theme in scripture that we never hear about today, the fear of the Lord. Christians have have always been described as those who fear the Lord. Uh, The church, it could be said, is the family of God gathered together and unified in their love for and fear of God. In the book of Acts chapter 9, it describes the church this way. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. love how it puts those two attributes, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, right next to one another, almost as synonyms. 
Calvin writes on this passage, he says, As then the truth profited only those who feared God, let us not wonder that it is despised at this day by the people in general. For it is given but to a few, it is given but to a few to obey God's word. And the conversion of the heart is a, is a particular gift of the Holy Spirit. There is therefore no reason for pious teachers to despond when they do not see their doctrine received everywhere and by all, or when they see but a few make any progress in the faith. But let them be content when the Lord blesses their labor and renders it profitable and fruitful to some, however small their numbers be. And so Calvin is saying of his day and age that there was very little fear of the Lord. And when, when he labored and labored and labored, he saw very few people come to a conviction of the fear, fear of the Lord as well. And he's, he's trying to uh, say, but yet there may be a few. And that's essentially what Malachi is saying here. There were those, I mean, he's been pounding on rebellious Israel, and we get in this little section a remembrance of those who feared the Lord. You, I suppose, are used to me advocating for the fear of the Lord. I don't think many of you would oppose the idea, though we all need to grow in our actual fear of the Lord, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Right before God, who is a consuming fire. And so the pursuit of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we are united to Christ, that pursuit will occupy all of our remaining days until we stand before God at our death. And even then, as his beloved children covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I think there will remain a fear there will remain a fear even after, after death and judgment, a filial fear, a trembling respect for the awesome power and majesty of the creator of all things, visible and invisible, he who spoke the worlds into existence. We will rightfully respect and fear the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs through all time. Right? In the book of Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb is described And in the midst of that, we read this announcement. Give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. Right? So the fear of the Lord is there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the awe and respect and trembling that will be present will be appropriate before Almighty God. So the fear of the Lord continues even into the new Jerusalem, even though sin will have no place there. The fear of the Lord will be pure and untainted from an an unbelieving terror or misjudgment about the character of God, right? We will fear God because we will know God as, as we ought, as he is. In Malachi We read this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. So the first thing to notice about this is that those who fear the Lord are speaking to one another. Right? This means that they are on the same page, that they they have love for one another, and they consider one another brothers. They are committed to one another in the Lord. Remember back in chapter 2, the prophet Malachi pointed out how the people were constantly at war with one another, 
right? Why do you deal treacherously against, your, against each against his brother? So as to profane the covenant of our fathers. They were, they were fighting to the point where it was profaning the covenant. The rebellious Israelites had no commitment to one another, only that worldly commitment to me, myself, and I, right? A commitment to one. The church, though, those who fear God will have a commitment to the church, right? The society of God and and their spiritual brothers and sisters. The Apostle John makes this abundantly clear in his letter to the churches. He pounds on this theme of loving one another. In 1 John 2, we read this, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In 1 John 3, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3.17, but whoever has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we see this in Malachi as he describes those who fear the Lord. They love one another. They speak to one another. They are committed to one another. And that should characterize the body of Christ. That should characterize the body of Christ. Our text goes on to say this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. God gives attention to those who fear him. So often the prophets announce that God does not hear the wicked. Right? We could go all throughout the, the major and minor prophets and and find statements about God not hearing the prayers of the wicked. The prophet Isaiah announces God's judgment on rebellious Israel with these words. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. I mean, what a terrible curse, right? What a terrible curse to pray and have God not listen. To pray and have God declare to you he's not going to listen. But with those who fear God, even when they speak with one another, the, the Lord gives attention and hears. I can't overemphasize how incredible a blessing this is. God listens to his children. God listens to his children. He hears them when they pray, when they cry out to him. How ridiculous is it that the Son of God said, all things you ask in prayer believing you will receive? 
I mean, how, how stupendous. Now, we want to qualify that statement of Jesus to death, but the only qualification that Jesus puts in that statement is believing. Right? Which is not a minor qualification. Think about that. God Almighty is listening to you. When you pray, Christian, you are not just thinking your own thoughts. Your words reach all the way to the throne room of God. You have his attention and he hears you. Stop and contemplate that. He might think, I mean, you might think that, that we would never cease praying knowing that that's true. That God hears and listens. You might think that when Paul says, pray without ceasing, we'd be like, duh. I mean, God's listening. But we get all locked up and say, how could anybody possibly pray without ceasing? Right? Well, God is listening. Then our text says this about God in relation to those who fear him. Not only does he give them attention, not only does he hear them, but a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. What does this mean? Um, It's very simple. God pays attention. He hears. He remembers. And to write a book of remembrance is a way of saying he remembers what's said. Right? To speak of a book of remembrance is a way of saying that God remembers the righteous acts of his people. In Hebrews chapter 6, we are taught this, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God is not unjust, so as to forget your work. It's written down in a book of remembrance, your work. The work of those who fear the Lord are remembered, even written down before the Lord, I mean, what a wonderful testimony. I mean, we think it is great when something we do gets written up in the local newspaper. Think about this book written by angelic recorders. And they're not just acts that please mankind. They're the acts that please God. Written down in a book of remembrance. God's blessings are adding up for those who fear him. And it it only gets better The text in Malachi goes on, it says, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And this from 1 Peter comes to mind. 1 Peter chapter 2, at verse 9, But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then there's this portion of Psalm 87 that says, but of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will, be, will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the people. This one was born there. 
speaking of his saints, speaking of their destination in Zion. And then this merciful prophecy of Hosea. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It's one of the most amazing parts of conversion, isn't it? That knowledge and very real experience that God says, of, says to you, mine. No longer alone in this world, no longer left spinning dizzily among the sins and chaos and everything under the sun, but just a deeply satisfying and calm realization coming from the Holy Spirit within us that God has chosen us as his own possession. Are you amazed by that thought? Have you, have you known God in that way? Is your knowledge of God merely abstract? He's a power. He's a creator. He exists. Or is your knowledge of God personal? Right? He loves me. And I love him. Remember that faith in God is not abstract and merely propositional. Um, the verse does not say, you shall research the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And amazingly, here's the reality of the situation. If you have a vital relationship with God, it did not start with your choice. As if he was waiting for you to initiate that relationship. Right? He said, previous, previous to even your ability to acknowledge or thank him, he said, mine. Mine. Again, the Apostle John, we love because he first loved us. And the Apostle Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. The ridiculous and stupendous glory of this fact. God said, mine of you before there was a moon. Before there were stars. Before there was the sun. Right Before those things existed, he said, mine. Do you doubt his love? How could you doubt his love? When that's the context. Does that even make sense? That you would doubt his love for you when that is the history of his love for you. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Then we read in our text in Malachi... I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now remember that the people had been saying it is vain to serve God. It's vain to serve God. Nothing ever good comes of it. It's a lot of wasted time. Is it vain? Is it vain to serve God? No, we know it's not. 
Like a father who cares for the son who serves him, so God cares for those who fear him, who believe in him, who and, and therefore serve him. Right? Honestly, dear brothers and sisters, when you, when you stand before God, you will only have regrets about having not taken advantage of every opportunity you've ever had to serve God. That's what you will regret as you stand before him and you think of all the missed opportunities that you chose to blow past. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Right? We have to get it through our head that service, service is a bummer if you're just thinking about yourself and the other person. It's a drag. But service, when you think of it as serving Almighty God, is really something. So let's clamor to serve God by serving one another, right? And, and let's seek to do good. Scripture says, but as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Produce good works. Good works, lots of good works. Perhaps we don't talk about good works because we don't want people to get confused that we're Roman Catholic. But we should. Scripture talks about producing good works. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And then Hebrews 13 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. God is pleased when we serve one another. So those who fear the Lord delight to do that which brings glory to God. That's what they delight in. Right? We, we should be zealous for good works. We should long to glorify God who has redeemed us from all our sins. We should delight to cook a meal for somebody. Even though we are busy, we should, we should delight to talk to our kids about Jesus even though we're tired. We should be quick to volunteer for the deacon work day. We should be quick to talk to our neighbors. We should, 
We should make the 45-minute drive to the Greenville Women's Clinic, even though it's inconvenient. We should change another diaper. We should make another meal. We should wipe up another pile of vomit. We should write new songs and say kind words to strangers because we want to produce good works that please God. We should be animated to action by the love of God. It should make us want to do good works. Why at the beginning of the week do we only think of, okay, this is what I have to get done, and not, this is fruit God wants me to produce? You know, here's my to-do list, and it has nothing to do about God. It has to do about work and bank statements and this and that errand and in the house and and this and that, but there's no, there's no sense that I'm going to be doing anything like that for the glory of God. There's no sense that I'm pursuing good works, even though some of those things could be good works done out of love for our brothers. But why not say at the top of that, I need to, at the top of your to-do list, do you do to-do lists? I'm obsessed with them. I love to-do lists. My wife is more obsessed than me, but... Um, But to-do list, put at the top of it, forget all the things below and produce good works that glorify God. Right? Unscheduled good works. Good works we couldn't possibly have the time for. Right? Why, Why shouldn't we be fervent to do those good works? We should be animated to action by the love of God, knowing that Good works glorify God, and he takes pleasure in them and will one day reward us for those good works. Should we be motivated by that reward? Should we be be motivated by the fact that God is a father who likes to give good, good gifts to his children? Absolutely. Do you ever try to motivate your children by giving them good gifts in keeping with their works? Of course you do. Of course you do. Sometimes you even show them grace, which is not giving them um, what they've earned. So think about the production of good works. Think about living a life where you are working for his glory rather than for your own glory, right? For his reputation and his name rather than for your own ambition and your own name, Right. Finally, this chapter in Malachi ends with this prophecy. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That ability to distinguish between what was lost to the rebellious Israelites who believed it was vain to serve God, they, they lost that ability to distinguish. But when the love of God is poured out in our hearts, along with that conversion, comes a real ability to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between service to God and service of every other kind, every other kind of service not to God. Just think of the things you thought were service to God or righteous before your conversion. What were the things that you thought were righteous before you knew Jesus Christ as your Savior? Perhaps... It was the legalization of weed. It's righteousness, man. You know? Or, or a, a woman's right to choose. 
That was righteousness before your conversion. Or the idea that all roads lead to God or that Jesus Christ was just a dude who said some some profound things. Or that your works could save you. Right? Your works could save you. No longer is that the case. No longer will that be the case when God chooses you out of this world, calls you to be his peculiar possession, puts his spirit within you, right? And honors you beyond anything you deserve by saying to you, mine, you're mine. Your thoughts are not even yours anymore. They're mine. And how glorious to have the thoughts of God, to have the mind of Christ. Is that all you desire? Is that all you desire to know that God says of you, mine? Is that your highest pursuit? Does that satisfy you? Right? Just to have that knowledge, would that be satisfying enough to you that God says to you, mine? If so, then, I mean, then you know God. Then you love God. Then you fear God. And more importantly, God knows you. And his affection on you was set there before the foundation of the very world. Amen?